0: No purchase necessary. Void Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Get Connected with Nina Del Rio, a weekly conversation about fitness, health, and happenings in our community. On 106.7 Light FM.
1: Good morning and thanks for joining me on Get Connected. I'm Nina Del Rio, about halfway now through the fall school semester and halfway into the first semester of the new occupational therapy curriculum for children at the Yeshivat Hayatid School in Teaneck, New Jersey. Why the need for an occupational therapy class even for the youngest students? Our guest is Dr. Hia Lam Warburg. She's the founder of Pediatric Occupational Therapy Services in Waldwick and Teaneck and the founder of this new school program. Dr. Warburg, thanks for being on Get Connected.
2: Thank you, Nina, for having me.
1: You can find out more about her practice, Pediatric Occupational Therapy Services, at their website, which is P-O-T-S-O-T dot com. So, Dr. Warburg, even before we start talking about children, let's talk about occupational therapy. What issues does it address for any age group?
2: Okay, so the, the goal of the occupational therapist for any age group is to bridge the gap between what people are supposed to do in their, every la- in their everyday lives and what they're able to do.
1: So we're talking about um, different behaviors, how people work around objects and in their physical spaces?
2: All of the above. So for children, we're trying to bridge the gap between what we expect of them both at home, at school, and and the community, and the capacities that they have. So, for example, children are supposed to, at a certain age, get dressed, get in the car, feed themselves in school, play with friends, focus and attend in school. And those are the, some of the functional tasks that kids need to be able to do.
1: So you're addressing issues that before they exist or for kids who probably have a little bit of a delay?
2: That is a very excellent loaded question. <laughs> so tra- traditionally, we're working with children who've shown a delay, a gap that's become apparent in some functional task. But what we're trying to do now in Yashibat Ha'atid is to proactively fill in gaps that we anticipate may be happening so that they don't emerge and children stay on track.
1: And how did that partnership happen? Did they see a need for it?
2: That partnership happened because they built a sensory gym in their school very similar to the sensory gym in my practice. And they're right around the corner and it became a natural alliance. Um, and as we, we did a fine motor boot camp last year that parents or teachers could sign up for, the results indicated that if we provided this, or the results suggested that if we provided this proactively rather than as a stopgap measure, children would um, develop more typically and, no, and the gaps that we see emerging wouldn't happen, and gaps that happen today that maybe wouldn't have happened 20 years ago.
1: When you're talking about gaps that might not have happened 20 years ago, I think the first thing people think of is, well, screen time might have gotten in the way. You've been doing this work for a really long time, since 1976. Mm-hmm. Over time, how have you know the development of screens and how kids are living today changed their their development, of specifically like their fine motor skills?
2: I think, I think dramatically for two reasons. One is what they're doing when they're doing screens, and they, more importantly, it's what they're not doing. So children develop through sensory motor play, meaning they use their bodies really creatively. They run, they hop, they skip, they play pretend, they build forts, they do arts and crafts. Um, they experience the world through their bodies and thus through their minds. Children who are on screens are not getting that rich variety of sensory input and feeling things and textures and smelling them and experiencing them and manipulating them. So while they're on the screens, they're denying themselves all of that rich sensory motor input that's really the foundation of early childhood development.
1: Our guest is occupational therapist, Dr. Haya Lam Warburg, founder of Pediatric Occupational Therapy Services. Their website is com. We're talking about the new curriculum she's helped introduce at Yeshivat Hayatid School in Teaneck, New Jersey. You're listening to Get Connected. I'm Nina Del Rio on 106.7 Light FM. So what kind of activities are in this new curriculum?
2: So we have... I'd say two categories of activities. The first set of activities are more core strengthening and gross motor control to prime kids' bodies to be able to sit upright against gravity, comfortably crisscross applesauce or in a chair, um, and, and sit with their bodies quietly. So we have those core strengthening activities. So we might do a human tunnel or we might do an obstacle course where we're working on kids' muscles from the core, from the inner muscles to the outer muscles, so that they're experiencing movement and strengthening in a developmental progression. So it involves rolling and crawling and jumping and inclines and going through tunnels and hula hoops and zip lines. An unending plethora of activities that are engaging, purposeful, targeted to the needs we see in these specific little bodies, um, and we'd like to put it all within a theme if we can to make some type of connection. But we can use every kind of tool and, and game to accomplish that. that. That's what OT's expertise is.
1: You also do all sorts of uh, skills that underlie handwriting? Yes, we do.
2: So after we finish with the core part and those little bodies are primed for sitting, we'll bring them to a table where they're sitting with their feet flat on the floor appropriately and work on underlying skills of handwriting. So finger isolation, separating the fingers, hand strengthening, um, using the fingers together in different combinations, um, cutting activities, maybe coloring on an incline um, in a way that naturally will pull out the, the underlying skills that are important so that children aren't just writing in an awkward compensatory manner, but in the way their bodies were designed to work.
1: Someone might say, wouldn't they just pick up these skills later on? Why is it so important to do this when they're little bitty kids?
2: Because when they're little bitty kids, if they're developing, they should be developing these skills typically. But kids aren't doing what they typically did previously. And many children have underlying weaknesses. So when we can put them in positions and give them activities that bring out the underlying skills that should be emerging at this age. They will be much stronger, um, and I mean that literally and metaphorically. They'll be much stronger um, students. They'll be much better able to get dressed, to get out of their car seats, etc. Um, and we, if we and we're, we're we attempted this program because we find that kids aren't able to execute what they used to do. Twenty years ago, yet the academic standards for what are expected from three- and four-year-olds have ramped up, while the little bodies that we're getting in school seem less prepared to do the kinds of activities we even expected 20 years ago.
1: Is there data that backs this up that the less development of physical activities has sort of hindered what their minds might be capable of? Or their focus, I say, I could say?
2: Sure. Well, there's, there's, a, there's um, a hierarchy of skills. I, I don't know if there's one a single study, but there's a hierarchy of skills that you need to reach academic readiness. And part of what you need for academic readiness, based on, based on the work of Piaget, is sensory motor development. That's a first stage of development. So sensory motor development is what we're promoting in these, in these four-year-olds, um, using their bodies, using touch, using the sense of gravity, sound, sight, pulling all the sensations together so that they can motorically execute things correctly and then that the feedback they get from doing things accurately makes them stronger and more efficient.
1: What are flexible classrooms and how does that work to help kids focus?
2: Okay, flexible classrooms really refer to flexible seating. Since kids are much less able to sit up straight, we see them fidgeting and rocking back and forth in their chairs and sliding out of their chairs and wanting to get up and get around and fidgeting endlessly. We have, all kinds, um, we, we have all kinds of ways of helping kids just be able to focus and pay attention because their bodies are solid. So we have wobble chairs and accordion chairs and sitting on therapy balls or um, dice them, which is just a sticky kind of substance or allowing kids to walk around a little bit or lie in their tummies. So when we build in that flexibility so the kids are more comfortable in their bodies, they're better able to focus and attend to what's going on in front of them.
1: This class is weekly. How is the program going thus far in the semester?
2: It's going beautifully. The teachers are extremely enthusiastic, as are the children. They've really... They come into the room, they're all excited. We've got just a starting routine, and then they really, really wait to see what's going to happen next. So the half an hour goes by in an absolute whirlwind of activity, and that half an hour has maybe had two hours of prep time put into it just to design the just perfect activities to elicit what we want from these kids, from their bodies.
1: Yeah, my next question would be how are, or what are you learning? How do you adapt what you're doing in your private practice to a group curriculum?
2: Very good question. Um, first of all, we had our fine motor boot camp last year that really kind of led us down this path and to the conclusion that this is something that we should be offering all children rather as an after-school activity. So what what we're learning is we have to create activities that will appeal and be engaging for all kids and that we need, en- we need enough therapists running the group so that we can individualize our attention to kids who need more help so that they acquire skills in the way that they need to be able to. So even though we're doing a group activity, our therapist's eyes are necessary every minute of the, of the half an hour in order to really make those activities work for each individual child.
1: And what should parents know about how to help their own kids?
2: There are many things parents can do. First of all, um, I would say limit screen time dramatically in order to make way for other things. Um, Parents should have their kids in the playground using lots of free play time rather than funneling them into traveling sports teams. Children need unrestricted opportunities for play in order to experience the physical world and strengthen all of the muscles in their body and develop overall coordination, not just dribbling skills or shooting skills. Um, it's great to take advantage of seasons. So with fall, raking leaves, gathering, gathering them into baskets, dragging them out to the curb, um, playing with them, jumping in them, uneven surfaces, gives opportunity for kids to feel where their body is in space. All of that heavy work really feeds their nervous system and enables them to Um, Develop a sense of proximity and body uh, and strengthens and and is strengthening. Um, Shoveling snow, gardening, all of those opportunities for heavy-duty work are things that feed children's sensory motor system.
1: We've had experts on the show in the past who've talked about kids in school anywhere who are disturbed by fluorescent lighting for sounds, kids on the autism spectrum. How does OT help these kids?
2: So one really important subspecialty of occupational therapy is sensory processing disorder. What we do is we analyze the triggers for kids' behavior, um, including kids on the autistic spectrum, and we, and we have a two- or three-pronged approach. One is to try to modify their environment to become less irritating and enable them to regulate the behavior. But the other is to work with kids to broaden, their, to broaden the threshold of what they're able to tolerate. And another is to give the children strategies, not just the, kid, not just the classroom strategies, in order to be able to recognize when something's going to be an irritant or an overstimulant and then give them strategies that they've practiced in order to use at the time that they need it. So there's many, there's many ways to approach the sensory issues of children on the spectrum and kids with sensory processing disorder in general.
1: When parents say their kid is a picky eater, before we get to our final question, I wanted to throw this one in. Picky eaters, what's your first thought about that?
2: My first thought is that picky eaters and problem feeders are not the same child. So for me, a child with a real problem has probably less than 20 foods, has eliminated an, or has eliminated an entire food group, let's say fruits and vegetables or proteins, or has, cannot go for three days without repeating a food or limits textures dramatically. Um, Some of the picky eaters are kids who I call, what I call, eat the five-base food diet, like Cheerios, crackers, pretzels, bagels, and maybe bread. And that's really a problem nutritionally. And each child requires their own kind of analysis to see what's pushing their, their eating buttons and develop a strategy for those children. And our strategies are very, very playful.
1: To be honest, those five beige foods, that's
2: a lot of adults' diets, too. (laughs) 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 Probably. But probably if you were at, but but adults probably aren't nervous that when they go to a family Thanksgiving dinner that there's going to be nothing for them to eat because they can't tolerate the sights, the smells, uh, and the touch of the food at the table. So that's why even if adults are eating the five based food diet, their tolerance is a lot broader than that and they can fake it till they make it. A lot of children can't do that. They can't tolerate being in the room at the table, the smell their parents cooking.
1: And that's a bigger problem.
2: That's a much bigger problem.
1: So this program, as far as you know, as far as we know, this is the first in the state, this program at Yeshiva Hayatid, the first occupational therapy program for kids. Have you spoken with other OTs about replicating or expanding this program?
2: Yes, I yes, I have. So first of all, I'm trying, you know, within the, within the New York, New Jersey area to expand this. Um, hopefully we'll do a little bit of research on it so that we know where we're starting and we know you know, what are, what if we've if we reached our end goal, and we'll really know that when these kids go into kindergarten next year. Um, and I've spoken with many OTs to find out if anybody's doing it, and I don't really know anybody who's doing this model in any state. Um, and, the, and the school that we're doing this in, Chibahatid, they want it all in. I proposed, you know, perhaps a semester to see how it goes, and they said, no, let's do it all the way. And I really respect that approach. Because I think this is gonna benefit the kids in their school tremendously.
1: Well I hope so. You can find out more about the program. You can find out more about Dr. Haya Lam Warburg on her website P O T S O T dot com. Thanks for joining me on Get Connected.
2: Thank you so much, Nina.
0: This has been Get Connected with Nina Del Rio on 106.7 Light FM. The views and opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of the station. If you missed any part of our show or want to share it, visit our website for downloads and podcasts at 1067lightfm.com. Thanks for listening.